but so summertime, right? Uh, summertime is, is everybody's, seems like everybody's favorite time of the year. I love summertime. The, the days are heating up, school's out, people are going on vacations. It's an exciting time of year. But one of the things I enjoy most about summertime is road trips. Anybody here a fan of road trips? Oh, yeah. Raise the, yeah, get them up. I even see some, some folks with kids who are fans of road trips. I'm a little bit surprised because it changes a little bit when you get little ones. Bob shaking his head up and down. But, yeah, road trips, road trips are a blast. Road trips are about a journey and not just a destination. They're about uh, the, the exciting times that you have along the road. Uh, it, it's, it's fun to look back on some of those journeys as you get a little bit older and look back on some of those road trips that you've had in the past and think of all that you learned, all that you experienced. And there's something special about setting out. You can only do it in the United States of America. Set out, hit your cruise control, and drive for a thousand miles in the same direction, maybe with a couple pit stops to, uh, to get some gas. But that's something unique that we have as Americans. But uh, traveling certainly picks up during summertime. Uh, but it's also interesting that, that vacation traveling is not the only kind of traveling that picks up during the summertime. Here at the church, you might not have noticed this, but we're kind of close to the interstate. Have you guys ever picked up on that? We're real close to the interstate here. And, and you might have guessed this or just um, figured this out from experience that we get a lot of folks who come in who are traveling from one place to another, but it's not a road trip at all. They're traveling uh, to either move or they're traveling because they're kind of on the run. They're not traveling because they want to. They're traveling because they have to. And uh, unfortunately, that kind of traveling picks up during the summertime as well. Just in this last week, I think I had three or four different cases of people who just... Un, you know, unbeknownst to us, came in the front door and said, hey, I'm stranded here in Ruston. I need help to get to my next uh, destination. And one of those I thought was interesting, and I think it kind of ties into our message today. There was a, a couple that came by Tuesday afternoon going from Dallas to Atlanta. Uh, so Joy Carroll um, met them at the front office. They, they came in the front, and she buzzed me in the back and said, Hey, John, we've got a couple here that's going, uh, and they're, they're about to run out of gas, and they need some help. Could you, could you visit with them for a few minutes and figure out what's going on? Well, I was in the middle of a project, and I didn't want to be interrupted, and, and that was the last thing that I had on the agenda for that day. But thankfully, through Joy Carroll's encouragement and through the work of the Holy Spirit, I took a few minutes there and I said, yeah, send them in. I, I'll visit with them. And so in came this couple that was in their younger 50s, and uh, they're on the way trying to get back home to Atlanta. Uh, this couple, um, they were without a job in Atlanta about a year ago. They moved to Dallas um, on the offer of a job renovating homes. And a few months in, things were going really well. But after that, the paycheck stopped. After that, um, the guy that they were working for uh, disappeared, and they couldn't find any of the money that they were owed. And so they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. They had a couple months where they tried to make things work in Dallas, but eventually they decided that they were just going to have to set out and try to go back home to be with family, to try to make some contacts back in Atlanta. So they're on the road here at I-20 this last week trying to get, get back home. But the problem was they, they were in a conversion van with a trailer, but they didn't have any gas. And so uh, at some point, something struck them, and they, and they decided to pull off the interstate and pull in 
to our exit here and come to our building and ask for help. And as they were telling me the story, uh, my frustration shifted to compassion. And I started thinking about, man, that's, that's got to be a, a pretty tough situation that you're in, that you're so desperate that you'll follow just, a, just a, an aim, just, a, just a, an opportunity that will send you halfway across the country, and that, that falls apart, and then you have to go back home. How embarrassing that must be. But as I talked to the couple, my emotions shifted. They continued to shift even more. You see, I asked the guy, I got him connected with kind of what we do normally procedurally through uh, Mike Stone's office and, and a background check procedure and then a way that we help people with vouchers and, and their situation. I got, kind of got him helped out in that direction. Uh, but as he was leaving, I said, sir, I got to ask you a question. What was it that made you stop here at Temple? I mean, there are lots of churches in town. I mean, sure, ours is very prominent, but there are other churches in town. What was it that brought you to our parking lot? And this was his response. He said, I'm Baptist. If I was going to stop anywhere, it was going to be a Baptist church. And son, God has provided for us all this way. And I just kept thinking he's going to provide for me some way through you guys as well. And as he left and made his way down to the sheriff's department, I don't know exactly what the next step was. I gave him my business card, told him, told him to give me a call if you know, things didn't work out. And so I'm assuming that he got on his way. But as he left, I kind of that line stuck with me. God's going to provide for me one way or another. I was just hoping it was going to come through you. And that just stuck me. And, and I shifted from frustration to compassion to a little bit of jealousy. And this is what I mean by that. That man and his wife were on a road that could only be paved by grace. Look, every time that guy stopped, he was hoping, praying that God was going to provide somebody to take care of just the next step on his journey. He, you know, knowing the way things like this work, he wasn't going to get uh, a $300 gas voucher at, 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 here in town. He was going to get a tank full of gas that was going to get him down the road a little ways. And then he was going to stop again, and he was going to stop again. And at every junction, he was at the mercy of the people around him and at the grace of God. Now, that may sound a little odd that I'd say I was jealous, but this is kind of what I'm getting at. I think in our culture today, we are so protected by our self-sufficiency. We are so protected by the fact that we can plan ahead that we don't ever get in situations where we need God's grace like that. Now, don't get me wrong. We're about to go to Montreal in August, a 3,200-mile road trip, two days each way, uh, and you better believe me, we're going to leave the parking lot with a van full of gas. I'm going to have multiple credit cards and a wallet full of cash. So I'm not saying that planning ahead is, is pointless. But what I am saying is that sometimes we carry over this attitude of self-sufficiency, this attitude that we can, we can make it on our own. Our, our, our own hard work, talent, planning is going to carry us even in our relationship with God. And that can lead us to some dangerous situations. And as I was reading through the book of Numbers... Uh, over the last couple weeks with the machines reading, that was one thing that I just kept seeing come up over and over and over again. It's this concept that, that God was trying to drill into the people of Israel that His grace was what was to carry them on their journey, 
not just the beginning, not just their exodus from from slavery in Egypt, but God's grace was intended to, to journey with them the whole way into the promised land. This concept that kept striking me and I think comes out clearly in our text today is that the road to redemption is fueled by God's grace. The road to redemption is fueled by God's grace. You see, oftentimes I think we as Baptists, we cling to verses like Ephesians 2.8 that says, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. And we make it really clear that salvation, our conversion, is a gift of God. But sometimes we forget that it doesn't stop there. And that God's plan is to carry us in his grace through this journey of redemption. It's not a journey that that finishes overnight, but it's a lifelong journey. And God intends to fuel that journey, to fuel that road by his grace. And so I think that that's the, uh, the message that we see coming out of our passage today in Numbers chapter 21. Verses 4 through 9. Those of you who are not named Loy Seal, Numbers is probably not your favorite book of the Bible. And so you can go ahead and start turning there because it might take you more, than, more time than it takes him. But go ahead and turn to Numbers 21 as, as I give you a little bit of background as we think through this road that the Israelites were on. We'll recap just a little bit. Israel's road began, began with a dramatic rescue. The people of Israel prayed for for generations after generation while they were in slavery in Egypt, asking God to deliver them. And he rose up, Moses, this great prophet and deliverer, to come and set his people free. And nowhere more clearly was God's rescue depicted than at the Red Sea. The Israelites faced uh, a giant body of water. They were helpless. The armies of Pharaoh were coming after them. And what did God do but reach out, part the waters in front of them, allow them to pass. And then when they were safely over, send those same waters to crush the enemy that was chasing them. Israel's road began with a dramatic rescue. And it continued time and time again. God showed himself faithful, providing for them in the desert with food providing them with water. They didn't buy shoes for 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out. God's grace was poured out on them over and over and over again. But somehow they missed it. Somehow they either allowed their self-sufficiency or their lack of faith to derail them. And that's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness They spent 40 years in the wilderness because God had to train this out of them. He had to discipline this lack of faith and lack of responsiveness to his grace out of them. You see, they tried to enter the promised land uh, right after they came out of Egypt. But they sent in the spies and they brought back a report that scared them off. You see, they didn't trust the God who had just led them through the Red Sea to deliver uh, the promised land to them. And so they spent years and years wandering. And so this passage, we encounter them. We've seen this road of rescue. We've seen this road of provision. And we've seen a dramatic rescue even just in the verses previous to this. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, is the first decisive victory that the people of Israel have over the Canaanites since they got whooped back in chapter 14. It's the first victory they've had. 
And still, in verse 4, you see a shift. A shift from rescue to rebellion. And that's where we pick up reading. In verse 4, Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us through your word. Illuminate our hearts. Help us to understand this truth that we need your grace every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Israel's road started with rescue, but it led to rebellion. Verse 4 picks up with the road trip, and we see the Israelites are kind of skirting the southern part of the land of Edom. Uh, Edom, as you know from Old Testament, uh, probably remember from your studies in the Old Testament, Edom was settled by the descendants of Esau. And God had given Moses a specific commandment not to attack the Edomites. But some scholars think that that's where the, the rub began here. The people of Israel started mumbling against, grumbling against Moses' leadership partly because they thought that they were, they were um, powerful enough to go take on the Edomites in their own strength. And instead of obeying God's command and being happy about the fact that they were jogging around the southern border of Edom, they wanted to go straight through it and march right up to Moab where God was leading them to walk into the promised land. So we see the rebellion begin out of their self-confidence, their self-reliance. They just come off this victory over the kingdom of Arad that we talked about in verses 1 through 3. And, um, and they were moving along. <clears throat> but they were moving along in this, in this pattern of complaining and grumbling that we've seen all throughout the book, book of Numbers. And verse 4 points out, they became impatient on the way. Now, if you've read through the book of Numbers, you could almost predict the complaints because they're the same ones over and over and over again. Verse 5, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? The first complaint that keeps, up coming, keeps coming up over and over and over again throughout Numbers is, God, we're going to die out here. You've abandoned us out here. <clears throat> Moses, why, what were you thinking? We're going to die out here. We were better off in Egypt. First complaint, failure, failure to recognize God's continued presence. The second complaint, there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Second complaint <clears throat> was against God's provision. 
God, as we, I talked about just a minute ago, had richly blessed the people of Israel. I mean, they were in the desert for heaven's sakes. They didn't, they didn't have options for food. And yet God was dropping food from the sky, bread from heaven, manna. And he was providing water from rocks. And he was providing shoes that didn't wear out. God was constantly caring for his people. And yet here, the complaint was that God didn't care for them. And as a matter of fact, they didn't really care for the food that he was providing either. So the complaints here are the same ones that we see over and over again. But the response is different. We see in verse 6, the rebellion leads to reproof. Verse 6 begins, the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now here's the part where Hollywood would probably pick up the story. Right? I mean, it's been a pretty, you know, mundane journey story to this point. Uh, You know, a bunch of maybe almost a million Israelites wandering through the desert, complaining, getting new laws, uh, setting up a tent so they could worship their God. Hollywood's not usually interested in that kind of stuff. But when the snakes come out, you better believe Hollywood would be interested. In fact, this may be like 90% of the movie if it's ever made into a movie. But it's interesting to note... Um, there's, no, there's no question where these snakes came from. There's never a question where these snakes came from. It's clear in verse 6 that who sent the snakes? The Lord sent the snakes. This was an act of, I called it reproof. You can call it judgment. You can call it discipline. God was so concerned with the worship of his people and with their hearts being turned towards him, that he was going to discipline them at the expense of even some of their own lives. You see, God knew that this road to redemption for the people of Israel was so crucial that he had to pull over the Israelites. He had to flag them over. He had to set up barricades to get them off the side of the road so that he could point out their need for his grace so that he could point to their fuel gauge and say, you're running on empty, you need my grace, you've gotten here by my grace, quit neglecting my grace. Now, um, some scholars would tell us that the adjective burning here that describes the, the, the serpents was, was describing the, the sensation of pain that would come out when the, when the um, snake's fangs would, would strike someone's foot or their leg. And you can almost see this, this pandemonium setting, uh, setting its course across the camp. You know, you've got almost a million people camped in a valley in tents. And thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of these snakes just appear instantaneously. You can almost imagine the terror, the panic. And you can imagine the pain that would go along with it. And you might think... You might think for a minute, wait a second, God, I think you've gone a little bit overboard here. I think you're getting a little carried away. This scene, what you're, what you're doing here, um, these venomous snakes that are coming out and killing people, I think, I think you've gone a little bit too far there. And in case we're ever tempted to say that, we have to realize what God was going after. You see, the wilderness journey was a time of purification for the Israelites. 
God was trying to establish his people as a light for the nations, a witness of his goodness and his grace to the world. And how in the world could they do that if they were rejecting and despising the grace that God had been pouring out on them for for a whole generation, for almost 40 years? If they're despising and rejecting that grace, how in the world are they going to be a light to the nations? as God's word promised that they would be. And so what was at stake here was bigger than just the the Israelite camp of a million people. It was God's mission in the whole world. And it was God's testimony among all the nations. And God had something that he was going after that was so important that he was going to discipline, that he was going to drive his people to their knees so they could see their need for his grace. The Israelites were in such a desperate situation that it took a legion of venomous snakes to get their attention. He had to force them to the side of the road. And that's the only way that venomous snakes can be called grace. It's when it leads God's people to repentance. You know, we see this truth really throughout Scripture. It's repeated in Hebrews. God disciplines the ones he loves. Now this is, you know, it's, it's really hard to project that on situations and say, I know 100% with 100% certainty that that what is going on in your life is God's discipline in your life. But we do know that God works all things together for good to those who love God or are called according to his purposes. And we know that it is his desire that we be shaped into the image of Christ. We know he uses terrible situations to make good things happen. And so we do know from experience that God takes terrible things and uses them to bring us to a place of dependence and need on him. Uses them to show us that we need his grace for the road that's ahead of us, that his grace is our fuel on this road to redemption. And that's exactly what it did for the Israelites. Hopefully not in quite as dramatic way for us, but I hope that's what happens for us as well. It drove the Israelites to repentance, and we see that in verse 7. The text tells us that the people did what they had done so many times before. They cried out for help. And who did they go to? They went to Moses. Moses was God's mediator for the Israelite people. Time and time again, you see scenes in the Old Testament where God is going before, uh, I'm sorry, Moses is going before God on, on behalf of the people. And the people are begging him to do this because they can't stand before a holy God on their own. You see, the people recognized their sinfulness and they knew their only hope was to ask Moses to step in and beg on their behalf. That was the brokenness that God had to drive his people to to get them to repentance. Isn't it sad that it had to come to that? I mean, seriously. Isn't there, you would think that with all the grace that God had poured out on his people, that they would have some way to respond other than absolute desperation for their own lives. But unfortunately, in this situation, that's not how it worked. God's discipline was designed to draw them to their knees. God's discipline was grace. I think you and I have seen that in our own lives. We've seen times where, um, if we're honest with ourselves, we've seen consequences from our sin. 
We've seen consequences from our um, broken relationships that can only that could only drive us to our knees in desperation. We need God's discipline at times to appreciate His grace. But isn't it a lot better when we can get there without that kind of dis- uh, discipline? Isn't it a lot better when we can just receive this truth that God was trying to drive home to the Israelites by example and not by experience? You know, that's, there's that old adage about, you know, it's a lot better to, to learn by example, you know, to, to learn uh, from someone else's example than by your own experience. And, and wouldn't it be easier for us if we could just learn to cherish the grace that God has poured out for us and, and just receive that along the way instead of getting to a point of discipline like this? For the Israelites, God's grace in his discipline moved them to repentance and that's what we see in the last couple of verses here in verses 8 and 9. We see restoration. The Lord responds in verse 8, Make a fiery serpent. So Moses has gone to, to God and said, uh, pleaded on behalf of the people to deliver them. God in his grace provides a way of escape like he always does. He says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now, if you're with me and you're tracking along the story, you haven't fallen asleep yet. Um, this seems like a bizarre episode, right? I mean, this seems kind of like an odd turn, right? So you've got this pandemonium in the camp. You've got people bit by snakes, screaming out for help, crying to Moses. Moses goes to God, and God's command is, Okay, Moses, why don't you take that, um, take that the metal right there, why don't you form that into the shape of a, of a snake, and put that up on a pole, and here's the plan. When people are getting bit and the venom is going into their bodies and they're writhing in pain, all they need to do is just look up to that snake and I'll save them. That seemed like a little bit of an odd, <laughs> a little bit of an odd deliverance plan. I mean, that doesn't seem like the first thing that would cross my mind. You know, my mind would go to like maybe some kind of ointment, uh, an anti-venom or something, you know, not a snake on a pole. I mean, seriously. God's telling Moses to put a snake on a pole in the corner and tell people to look at it. Seems bizarre. But you know why? Why did God tell them they needed to look at a snake? Well, there's two reasons. And I see this echoed in other scripture, but take it uh, right now and you'll get it from Jesus' lips in a minute. God was trying to get them to see their sin and to reach out for redemption. He wanted them to see their sin and reach out to their Redeemer. And that's exactly what they had to do. When those men and women who were bit by snakes looked up and saw the serpent, you know what they were thinking. They were thinking... We are getting exactly what we deserve. That serpent up there, that bronze serpent, is a picture of what we deserve because of our rebellion against God. That's what God was trying to teach them. He wanted them to see their sin for what it was. Sin wasn't just dabbling around. It wasn't just having fun. It wasn't just going off on our own way. It was shaking 
their fists at the God of the universe who had provided for them so richly and rejecting him. Sin was rebellion and they were getting exactly what they deserved. God wanted them to see their sin. But the good news is that that wasn't all that that snake was trying to represent. God also wanted them to look to a redeemer outside themselves. And this is where I think Jesus' words in in John chapter 3 make this passage even more clear. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 3. The verse before, the two verses before, perhaps the most famous verses in all Scripture. Jesus, as you remember, was... um, talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a a teacher of the law who came to Jesus under the cover of night and asked him questions about the teaching that he had been hearing. And there was one thing in particular that was tripping Nicodemus up, right? It was this concept of being born again. He said, "Um, I don't get this whole, you're talking about being born a second time. How can, can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? How does that work? That doesn't make sense. And Jesus, in explaining how that worked, and explaining the, the regener- excuse me, regeneration that comes through the Holy Spirit, he said this, verse 14, John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As one commentator said, there was no healing virtue in the bronze serpent in the wilderness. It was the saving grace of God that healed the bitten Israelites when they believed his word and obeyed his command. But in the Son of Man, who was lifted up, there resides infinite healing virtue, far more potent than anything that was experienced by the Israelites in the wilderness. They were, cure, they were cured of physical disease, but it is eternal life that the Son of Man ensures to those who look on Him. You see, when the Israelites were looking up at the bronze serpent, they were seeing their sin, but they were also looking to something outside of themselves that represented their Redeemer. God's plan was always redemption. God's plan was always that there would be a sacrifice that would come and take the place and take the sin that we, uh, the guilt that we deserve because of our sin. In the Old Testament times, uh, it was a goat. Passover time, it was, it was a lamb that was slaughtered and the blood was placed over the door. And Jesus, he was that sacrifice, that something that was cursed, just like a snake was cursed in, in Hebrew culture, he became a curse for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus A curse. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed so that we could receive his healing, his blessing. And that was the picture that we see in the healing of the Israelites from the bronze serpent. 
See, there was, a, there was a bigger truth that God was pointing out here. And it's alluded to in Numbers, but it comes full circle in Jesus' life and ministry. And that's this. We can't be good enough. We can't make it on our own. We, when we are honest with ourselves, we're sinful. We're rebels. We deserve God's justice. And we have to look that straight in the eye and be honest about that. We have to deal with sin before we can receive the grace that God has for us. We have to see our sin, but we also have to reach out to our Redeemer. So some of you today may be asking, what in the world does this passage that was written thousands of years ago to some people wandering about in the, in the desert, what does it have to do with me today? Well, here's, here's how it applies to you. All of us are snake bitten. All of us have venom running through our veins that is sin. We not only inherited it, but have ourselves given into it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're already bitten. We're already dying. Our only hope is to look to the cross. To look to our sin and the judgment that came as a result of it, that was poured, the wrath of God that was poured out on his son, but also to reach out to our Redeemer and receive that for ourselves. So if you're here today and you have never started that road to redemption, it begins with a rescue and that rescue can happen tonight. You can take that step and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know my only hope is redemption through Jesus' blood. I'm falling on my knees and I'm receiving that today. You can do that today. But I know most of you, and that's not where most of you are. Most of you are in one of two positions. You're either at a point of self-reliance where you don't need God's grace or you're at a point of despair where you've given up on it. And if that's where you are, you also need to hear that same message. Look to the cross. Look to the gospel for your hope. If you're in despair, some of you here, um, you know, maybe you've been dealing with sin that has just plagued you for years. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's unresolved, broken relationships that you've not been able to forgive. Maybe it's uh, pornography. Maybe it's greed. But some of you here, some of us here, have sin that has so crippled us that we've given in to despair and we've forgotten that the road to redemption is fueled by grace. And the message for you, if you're in that situation, for me, is to receive the grace that God has for us along the road. You see, grace isn't just what gets us on the road, that gets us out of the ditch. Grace is what carries us on all the way home. Grace after grace after grace. Just like the Israelites, they received manna, they received water, they received clothes that didn't wear out. They received guidance from God's presence. They received His laws. They received grace after grace, and we receive the same thing too. 
And so if you're here today in despair to the sin that you can't conquer, the word of God to you today is that there is grace that is greater than all your sin. Some of us are on the other side. We don't think we need it. We're self-reliant. We're good enough. Hey, God, I got it from here. I know the way from here. I got enough gas in the tank. I got a GPS. I got it from here. And to us, to those of us who are in that boat, we need this word just as desperately or even more than either of those those other situations. We need to hear the same message that God was trying to drive home to his people in the desert. And that's this. You need my grace to sustain you every single day. You can't do it on your own. You're running on empty and you need my grace. And by the way, the only reason you've gotten this far is because you've had it all along. The only reason why you've gotten this far is because God has, through his spirit, worked in you, through his word, worked in you, through his community of faith his people poured into you and that's the only reason why you stand where you are today you're not here because you're good you're here because God's good and his grace has carried you where you are and so if you're in that position of self-reliance of pride of self-sufficiency you need this message more than anyone else because you and I need to hear this truth that God's grace is what carries us along the way. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to give you a chance to respond however God is is working uh, in your life. But um, as I was thinking about this, the words to a hymn came to mind. And I even called up Jeremy at the last second, and he made a change. And and we're going to sing this. But uh, I just want to read a a couple lines of this hymn because I think it's so poignant for us to hear in this context. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Sin and despair, I love this verse. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin.